0: Good evening, everybody. I'm Michael and I'm an alcoholic. I'm here at a conference with my people again. Isn't this the greatest thing you've ever seen? Woo! Woo! And I'm glad to be here. Uh, my sobriety date is February the 12th, 1990, and my home group's the Brentwood Full Moon Group, which is just south of Nashville. We meet on Friday nights at 630, and they probably didn't even miss me tonight, but that's uh, my home group is tonight. Um... Thanks for the committee for inviting Diana to come up here. We were looking forward to coming last year. Of course, that got canceled by COVID, but uh, I'm glad this could be put together. And um, Thanks for Brian for inviting us and for Jason being my host and all the people that have put this on. It's this just a great event. We actually got to come up here. Diane and I came up here in 2002 uh, just to hear the speakers, and we hadn't been back since. And I actually bought a, a second edition study book from Peggy M., who was here at the time? They recorded that, and I bought this study edition from her, and I've carried it all this time. And I still have the CDs from that that weekend that I still listen to because there were the speakers were great. Uh, Clancy was here, and Peggy was here. There was a lady named Clara that spoke, that drank with Billie Holiday, it just had a tremendous story. Uh, there was a guy, there was a man named Harris who had his story was in the big book, and I still listen to those CDs. And by the way, I uh, I want to I want to. I want to just say something here. Sure. Is that better? Yeah. And uh, I just want to, I want to say that, you know, in the Internet age, it seems like everybody gets something for free. And, you know, you can just Google people's names on the Internet and get their AA talk sometime. But there's people that record these things, and they're really recording our history. And, and, if, and if they don't record this stuff, we don't get to listen to the people that have passed on. And, and Mike over here has, has driven 13 hours over here to record this. And, you know, if we stop supporting the people that record these, these events, they'll stop coming if we don't support them. So I hope you'll support Mike and everything. And thank you for coming and doing this. For I really appreciate it. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the best thing that's ever happened to me by far and maybe for my family too. Um, when I came here, I was the opposite of what this right here was saying. Man, I was... I was lost, I was frightened, I didn't have any purpose in my life, I was 39 years old, I didn't want to live anymore, I didn't have a plan to kill myself, but I was just, everything good and decent in my life had been destroyed by alcoholism. And AA has given me a chance to be the kind of husband and father and grandfather and brother and son and friend that I always wanted to be. But alcoholism got in the way. Um, Several of you remarked, you see my tie, this is my Dr. Zeus tie. (laughs) Uh, my, my, my granddaughter gave me this, this tie, and uh, my granddaughter is, is always, I, I, I read Dr. Seuss when I was a kid, and then, then I read him to Dr. Seuss to both of our sons, and then I read it to my granddaughter when she was little. And, you know, that's about as intellectual as I get uh, from Dr. <laughs> Seuss anyway. But um, uh, one thing about my granddaughter, she grew up in AA, and she always hung out in the AA room after the, after the meetings, and Diane thinks we're going to have to have a seat for that person someday, but um, AA's given me a lot of things that are just different that I get to deal with, and one of them is is that my granddaughter uh, three years ago came to us and said, you know, I'm transgender, and I've I've always known this, and and I'm going to transition and be a male, and I'm going to graduate, get my diploma when I graduate from high school with my new name. And AA's given me the ability to love people unconditionally, and that um, my grandson now, Needs my love and support more than ever, and I'm able to give that to him as a result of being a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and and I always want to be, I always want a grandson anyway, so you know, that's a win-win thing. Uh, and I'm glad I'm I'm glad my my loving wife Diane's here. Uh, she's the light of my life. I call her Sparky because she's got so much energy. She has this zest and zeal for life is just incredible. She just wears me out telling me her schedule every day. And, and one of the other things, once upon a time she told me of all the alcoholics and drug addicts she's ever dated, she likes me best, and that, that's as good as it gets for a guy like me. Uh, you know, alcoholism didn't, like I said, it just about killed me by the time I was 39. But it didn't start out that way. I grew up in a home where everybody drank. You know, Kim talked about that early. It was just drinking was what you do. Uh, and, uh, I remember my parents worked hard. They, they started this business by the time I was born and they worked real hard every day and they'd come home and they'd drink and then they'd drink with their friends on the weekend and unwind. And I thought, well, that's what you do. You work hard and then you drink and unwind, you know, and every now and then somebody overshoot the mark a little bit and bad stuff would happen. Uh, but I thought, you know, they just need to dial it back, you know? And so I went out with some older boys when I'm 14 or 15 and they're passing around this bottle of gin that they'd gotten out of somebody's liquor cabinet. And I hated the taste of it, but you drink, so I'm drinking this stuff, and I, I got past the taste of it pretty pretty quick, and well, I'll cut through the chase, I just overshot the mark the first night, <laughs> because I, I, I drank a bunch, and I felt great, better than I ever had, I didn't have these feelings of difference, or uh, being shy, or afraid, or scared, or worried about rejection, or conflict, any of that stuff, man, I, I just had a great time. And uh, these guys took me home, and I remember staggering down and getting in the bed, and the bed started spinning. I put my foot on the floor like we all do, trying to stop the bed, and that didn't work. And I got sick. I wake up the next day, and my mother even thought I had the flu. She told his friends there, that oh, I must have had some kind of stomach virus, you know. So I got away with it. And never once did I think I'm, I'm not going to do this again. Because I had a good time. I, I got there. You know where there is. If you just get there... Man, it's, it's, it's the greatest feeling in the world, if you're an alcoholic. So I spent the next 25 years just trying to not overshoot the mark. I mean, my idea of social drinking is drinking as much as I can without slurring my words. Uh, I mean, I chased that feeling. And I dressed it up saying, well, I really like this stuff, I like that stuff. Man, I just like that feeling, and I chased it. I used to say that my grades went down once I started drinking, but they weren't that good to begin with. <laughs> But I managed to get out of high school. My parents sent me off to college. And I go over there, and, and that's when the drug culture really took off in the late 60s. And, and I'm standing up here, and I'm telling you, I'm a real alcoholic, but I like all those, par- those party favors that are out there, too. You know, anything will supercharge my drinking. So I fall into all that other stuff, and I just drank and drug my way through four years of college. And I dropped out with six hours left of getting a degree in business management because I'm the guy that starts. I got the best intentions in the world. Anybody else have those? You know, I remember when I was a, I was a kid, I'd, I'd get report cards and the teachers would write on there, "Michael has great potential," and I thought that was a compliment. You know? That just means you haven't done anything. You know? So, so I drop out of college because I know I'm going to go to work for this family business that I'd worked after school and during the summers for. And I was always a hard worker because I liked to work hard because it made me money to lead this lifestyle I was having. Plus, it, I thought it gave me some kind of self-esteem that my dad would think more of me if I was a hard worker. And I took that into my adult life, by the way. So I meet Diane right about the time I drop out of school. And we both move back to Nashville. And I go to work. And and uh, she gets a job somewhere. And we're dating. And we date for a couple of years and and. Uh, it just, it just didn't work. And I, and I didn't have any communication skills, and I didn't know how to talk to her about anything. I just, told her one, I just broke up with her one day, and she went on and moved on with her life. And I went off, and I'm working hard, and I'm playing hard, working at this business. And about a year later, I have to get my wisdom teeth out. You know, they give you a whole bunch of drugs to do that. And they told me to bring somebody with me because I couldn't drive home. So I get my office manager to go to this oral surgeon with me, and they put this stuff in my arm. Man, they could have pulled my jawbone out. I wouldn't have cared. <laughs> he leads me out of there, and he takes me back to my apartment. He said, look, is there somebody I can call because i got to get back to work, and, you know, you need to have somebody with you until this stuff wears off. And I'm just loaded on these drugs, and I, I start writing on a piece of paper because I can't talk. And I wrote, call Diane and wrote her work number down. Now, this guy knew I dated Diane, but he had no idea I'd broken up with her a year ago. (laughs) And he just calls her up and said, Hey, Diane, this is George. Mike's had his wisdom teeth out. He wants you to come over and take care of him. (laughs) And she's thinking, George who? Mike who? I mean, she had another guy living with her. But she came over on her lunch break. (laughs) You know, if she'd been at al on then, I don't know whether she'd have come. We might have a different story. But anyway, she came over on her lunch break, and I'm just loaded, and I start writing down, I love you, I want you back, move in with me. And uh, she did two days later, and that was March 18th of 1975. We've been together ever since. And, uh, we, every March 18th, we celebrate Tooth Day. So, Any anyway, rate, so we get back together, and I get loaded on something else. One time, I look at it, and I said, "Hey, let's just let's get married, just out of the blue." So we get married a couple of months later, and and uh, we start this this life together. And uh, we had a couple of kids. We have two sons. Diane had two sons. Not long after that, after a couple years later, after we got married, uh, they were they were uh, twelve and eight when I got sober. Eleven and eight when I got sober, and they're now thirty nine and forty two. And I have good relationships with both of them today, by the way, and I hope I have time to talk about them later but anyway i'm 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 at this job, and my dad gets an opportunity to leave the business for a while and take another position and so I take over this business, and I'm a young guy and i'm I'm young and energetic and hard working and i'm I'm trying to do the best I can, and I don't know how I did it, but i I took this business over and I'm running this business and and so I'm really working hard and and I'm getting all this stress because I think I got this high high stress job now, and I got this wife with a couple of kids and all this. So I go to my doctor, I said, man, I'm really stressed out. And so he gives me some tranquilizers, and then later on I start having these terrible headaches, these migraine headaches, so he gave me some painkillers. <laughs> and then I start having these ungodly mood swings that I thought were, were I, I got diagnosed with clinical depression, and I'm sure there is such a thing, but I had untreated alcoholism, unbeknownst to me. But he puts me on these antidepressants, so I'm taking the antidepressants and the tranquilizers and the painkillers and, and all the street drugs I'm taking, and I'm washing that down with Crown Royal, and I'm just trying to power through life and be somebody. But I'm real successful in this business, so I'm buying stuff, and I'm thinking, if I look good on the outside, I'm okay. But inside, I'm just dying. And, and man, I start doing some really crazy stuff. You know, I mean, I, I start just doing some bizarre stuff. And, and there was a... Uh, uh, I read the the daily reflections and the, the the reading this morning it says driven uh, driven by a hundred forms of fear self-delusion self-seeking and self-pity we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate well i went i really lived that pretty good um <laughs> i used to be in the landscaping business and diane and i bought a house that we still live in it's it's on the on a really high hill on a dead-end street in Nashville. It's one of the highest houses in the county. And all, all our neighbors don't, most of them don't have any landscaping at all. They just have their houses in the woods. But I'm in the landscape business, so I'm trying to show off what a big shot I am with, and trying to grow grass with all these trees, and I couldn't do it with all the trees in my yard. And so I'm thinking, well, I'll just cut all my trees down. And that had been a pretty good plan, but I really wasn't quite sure where my property line was on one side of me. I knew where, I knew where it was at the street, but our lot goes way down this steep hill. I mean, I've only been down there twice, since two or three times since 1976, man. I mean, it's straight up and down. But I wander off down the hillside, and I find this iron fence post in the ground, and I convince myself that was my property line. And so I call up these surve- this guy that had a surveying team, and I said, hey, I need you to mark this line for me. I can't even see my house where I found my line. And These guys came over there, and they told me two or three times. They said, we don't think this is right. But, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I got this laser beam focus. I know everything, and I'm paying you, so you do it my way. So these guys marked this line where I told them to. And when they got through with the stakes and flags, they were almost touching my next-door neighbor's house. I mean, it was from here to that wall. And a sane person would have thought, you know, maybe these guys are right. They're surveyors, you know. But not me. I think I know everything. The first thing I thought of was that old goat. He's been using our land all this time. You know, he, he built his house up on the, on my on my property. He's been using my land, and I feel violated. You know, and I don't have any communication skills. And I'm not waiting till he gets back from Florida because I'm sure I'm right. I'm not going to discuss it with him. And I get a friend of mine that comes that had a tree surgery company, and he sends two two crews of people over there with two of those big bucket trucks and all these guys with chainsaws Kim talking about chainsaws earlier and they cut all these trees down between our houses and, and man it was a it was a lot of trees uh, according to a jury of my peers it was a it's 50 it was fifty thousand dollars worth of trees in 1984 because he wasn't happy when he got home with my surveying it. And he shouldn't have been, and he sued me. And he, you know, and he was so upset that he asked for a jury trial. I mean, I had to go sit through a two-day jury trial for cutting this guy's trees down. And I dressed up in a three-piece suit with a vest, a gold chain, a pocket wash, and I go strutting in this courtroom like I'm some dignified businessman been falsely accused. And I'd sweat it all the way through the suit, and I was eating chomping these blue volumes during the recesses, you know, to try to act calm while his attorney just portrayed me as a lunatic for doing this. Well, they awarded him the $50,000 and they added $5,000 more punitive damages to it that he didn't even ask for. (laughs) Now, for everybody that's new in here tonight, I'm trying to describe what a resentment is because I hate this guy. I think he's (laughs) overreacting. You know, I thought they were my trees. And so for the next several years, I'm awful to this man. I mean, I, I would ease my, if I'd see him coming down our dead end street, I'd ease my car over in his lane like I was playing chicken with him. And, and I'd curse at him when he got his mail. I was just awful to this man. And, you know, I, I used to say I never heard anybody but myself. Uh, I was the tornado roaring through the lives of others. Dan and our young sons used to go visit these people during the day when I was at work. They were an older couple, and they were wonderful people. And my story is about forgiveness and redemption, and that's what I'm going to tell you about before this is over with. But there wasn't any of that at this time. It was just all hate and anger and untreated alcoholism. And I did something worse than that. Uh, a couple of years before I cut his trees down and he sued me, he came to me and wanted to know if I could get him a weeping cherry tree for his yard. He said, my wife thinks that's the prettiest tree there is. Can you get me one of those? And I said, sure, what else do you want? He said, well, I don't know anything else. And I said, well, go ask her. And he came to me and he said, well, we can take these other bushes you know something we could use and i said where are you going to plant them and he showed me well i went and got one of my crews and got the weeping cherry tree and these other plants and planted them in the man's yard and he came over to the house and he said i didn't mean for you to plant those for me he said i'm just hoping you'd get me the material he said how much do I owe you i mean he would just want to do business with his neighbor but me the big shop Oh, you don't owe me anything. It's like, look at me. I'm a big shot. I got this company. I got these people. I don't need your money. I can just do these things. So I wouldn't let him pay me. You know, but I didn't do anything for free and for fun back then. Well, a couple of years later, after he sued me for cutting his other trees down, I went over there the very next night with some herbicide and put on that weeping cherry tree and killed it. Yeah, there's some al here tonight, aren't there? <laughs> AA's always laugh, al go, oh. (laughs) By the way, for the al that are here, there's promises in the big book, even for the al on page 23, it says, once in a while, he may tell the truth. Uh, There's hope there. And by the way, please come here, Diane, tomorrow at 11 o'clock, because she has a real story. Mine's just hearsay. Uh, Anyhow, so, that's what I did. And every day I'd pull in my driveway, hating that man when I'd, I'd pull in my driveway and think about what he did to me because I never took responsibility for anything I did. I'd made it your fault. And I'd go in there being mad before I'd even go see my wife and my kids every day for years. And that burns when I have a resentment like that. I'd drink over it. And my father came back from this this, uh, position he had and wanted his job back in the business. I said, no, man, I'm running this thing now. You just need to retire. And he drank like I did, so you can imagine what that was like. It was just a train wreck. And about this time, my mid-thirties alcoholism just took me to the dark side. I don't like to talk about this part of it, but it's just part of our story. I started cheating on my wife, and I knew it was wrong, and I just did it. You know, I was caught in that spiral of darkness, and I, and everything good in my life was falling apart. And I got so mad at my dad that I went. To, he'd come out to my office and trying to tell me what to do all the time and I brought my shotgun to work one day and I was going to shoot his Buick when he pulled in the in the parking lot to let him know I didn't want him around that's that's how I communicate with people at the time and I went home and I told Diane what I thought about doing and she said you know you need to you need to talk to somebody so I went to my doctor one more time and I said look I don't know whether you want to put me in a nut house or what but I was going to assassinate a Buick this morning and I know that's never good (laughs) And so he sent me, set me up to go to see this lady that was a psychologist on the following Monday. So I decided I'm not going to drink that weekend. And I had quit. I had stopped drinking for a, if I got in too much trouble or got sick, or really made a fool out of myself somewhere. I'd quit, and I actually quit for eight and a half months one time. It was the worst eight and a half months I've ever spent in my life. You know, I thought if you don't drink, then the drinking's not a problem. Or if you can stop, drinking's not a problem. I had no clue what alcoholism was. So I, I don't drink that weekend, and I go see this lady on a Monday, and I get to think, I, I think I'm paying her $75 an hour. I'm going to get tell her what a rotten guy my father is. My wife's on my back, and I got this high-stress job. And she said, I want to ask you a few questions. How much do you drink? I said, well, I don't drink. And she said, you don't drink at all? I said, no, ma'am. And she said, well, did you ever drink? I said, yeah, I used to. And she said, how long ago did you stop drinking? I said, uh, Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> And that, and that was even a lie. I looked on my calendar. I, you know, I quit on Friday. I thought if I added a day to it, it'd sound like a long time. <laughs> I mean, God, the insanity. And she said, well, before you quit drinking, how much did you drink? And honest, to this day, I don't know because I had supplies of everything all around me. My old buddy that got sober, same year I did, Tom, that, that uh, Diane knew a long time ago from, from grade school, he said I used to clink in the wintertime because I'd carry all these little miniature crown royals in my pocket. I mean, <laughs> And, and so I don't know, but I told her as best I could, and then she asked me something that just brought me to my knees. It was my, that moment of clarity, that that gift of desperation, which sure doesn't seem like a gift at the time as as we all know. But she said, Do you take any drugs? And I just crumbled. At that moment I was just I thought, I can't live. I just can't do this anymore. You know, this is too hard to do. It's like somebody lifted a boulder off of me in the sunlight, hit me and she said I said, yeah, i take some drugs. She said, what kind of drugs do you take? And I told her all the stuff I had prescriptions for and all the stuff I was getting from undocumented pharmacists or whatever you call them. And she said, well, do you have any drugs with you now? And I reached in my pocket, and I said, yeah. And I pulled out my change, and I started just going through my change, counting these pills. And I had 37 blue valiums just loose in my change, and she thought that was a lot. (laughs) But I quit drinking on Friday, and I was a little jumpy, so I bought a hundred of them from this Waffle House waitress, and that's what I had left on Monday. <laughs> so she stops the interview and said, "and and said uh, said before we go any further, I want you to have an addiction evaluation done." And I'm thinking, man, I got real problems here. What do you What do you mean? Yeah, it just keeps going. It just keeps sliding down, and uh, so. Uh, Hi, everybody. I'm Mike Allison. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Is that better? Is that better now? I'm sorry. Okay, so I go. we go to this. She refers us to this addiction guy, and Diane goes with me this time. We fill out these forms, and the guy gets us together. And he says, look, he said, what you wrote down, he said, this is pretty standard stuff. You know, this isn't, you know, rocket science. He said, from what you've written down here, he said, you've been an alcoholic at least for 15 years. If you don't get some help pretty soon, you're going to die. And the first thing goes through my mind is, how could you say it in front of my wife? <laughs> I mean, my ego will kill me trying to protect itself. But at any rate, the guy told me, he said, you need to go to treatment, you need to go to AA. And I said, well, I can't go to treatment. I, I, I got this business that's falling apart, and I hadn't worked all winter, I got to go to work. And he said, man, if you don't do something about your drinking, you don't have a business, you're going to be dead. And so, uh, oh, and Diane hadn't been to Al-Anon yet, and she said, what can I do? And the guy said, pack his bags, I remember saying that. <laughs> so I go see this lady at a treatment center, because they had an outpatient program. In the next couple days before I go see, I see all these billboards around town for treatment centers and I'm thinking, man, these people know I got good insurance. They're just trying to rip me off. Because I'd go from I can't stand to live in my skin another 30 seconds to, well, I'm not that bad. You know, so I went back and forth on that. I wasn't sure I was powerless over alcohol, but man, I knew my life was unmanageable. But I, I enroll in this treatment center and maybe it's the first thing I ever completed in my life. And one of the couple things they they required me to do is that I had to go to five AA meetings a week, which I thought they meant five meetings, and they said no five a week. And that I had to get a sponsor on the fifth week before I got out of this program. So I found out about the Full Moon Group, and I go there on a Friday night, and I get there late, and the parking lot's full of cars. And, I mean, they're parked on the grass and everything else. And I thought, well, man, I've come the wrong night. You know, this church must be having some kind of picnic or bizarre or vacation Bible school or something. You know, I didn't know anything about AA. I thought AA was a couple of old guys in trench coats and, you know, shaking and puking on each other. I didn't know what AA was. <laughs> and the only guy that's late is this, this musician. And he comes over to me, and he said, can I help you? And I said, well, you're so-and-so. And And he said, yeah. And I introduced myself. I said, man, I love your voice and your band. I go see you at the Bluebird Cafe and any place you play. And he said, man, I appreciate that. He said, "Uh, can I help you? And my mind's going to work because I'm thinking, you know, this is a cool guy. He's still a cool guy, by the way. I'm thinking, he can't be in this A&A thing. He must belong to this church. He's going to do a benefit for it or something. But he kept asking me. And finally, I just said, I heard there was an AA meeting here. And he said, yeah, mate, you're in the right place. And he opened the front door for me to my first meeting. And I found out he had about four years of sobriety. And he might as well have been Bill Wilson to me (laughs) when I went in there. And by the way, I was afraid somebody would see me in that parking lot at an AA meeting. I parked my car in front of the front door of the cockeyed camel every day at 6 (laughs) o'clock. I never thought anything about that. Well, Frank opens the door for me, and, 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 and they seemed to know I was new. And 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 they did a first step meeting for me, and I'm so thankful for that because I was just a mess. I mean, I didn't I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I really didn't know what was wrong with me. And uh, and I sat down, and they did this first step meeting for me, and gave me love and service, which I'm so so thankful for. Uh, and they went around the room telling their stories, and there was this one guy, Joe Wall, a great big tall guy who's six six. He's been dead a long time now, and he said he'd had two DUIs in one day. <laughs> Twice. Twice. And I've never had a DUI, so I don't think, you know, I got 20 more years of drinking before I belong in here. And the guy's been my sponsor now uh, for a long time uh, said that he'd sleep with this pint of vodka. He said he's down drinking this old bottom shelf vodka. He said it was so, so bad. He said it was all C's and Z's. It didn't even have any vowels in the name of it. <laughs> And he said he'd wake up in the middle of the night shaking. He'd have to drink about half his pint to stop shaking and go back to sleep for a couple of hours till his alarm went off. And when he'd wake up, he'd be shaking again, and he'd finish off this pint where he could shave and brush his teeth and put on a tie and go to work at this big insurance company where he was a corporate executive. And I'm thinking, I'm not that bad. Now, I'm sitting there. i got nowhere else to go. i got a loaded 9-millimeter Smith & Wesson pistol in my pocket. I'm a dangerous person. And I'm thinking, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as these people. Uh, and by the way, they... When they Got to the end of it, they ran out of people going around the room and they said, have You got anything you want to say? And I said, Well, I'm Mike. I, I don't know whether I'm an alcoholic or not, but I've been diagnosed with clinical depression. And they all just died laughing. <laughs> my, and my grand, sponsor, my grand sponsor said that if I, they'd known I had that pistol in my pocket, they wouldn't have laughed so loud. So be careful. <laughs> be careful when you laugh, you're laughing. you newcomers, you know. But what I learned there. It's not the circumstances, not the divorces and the bankruptcies and the jails and all that stuff. It was how alcoholism made them feel. The pain they had whether they were drinking or not. You know? Not so much that it was a drinking problem. I came here thinking I had a drinking problem. If you've got a drinking problem, just stop drinking you'll be fine. But those eight and a half months that I didn't drink were the worst eight, eight and a half months in my life. Because alcoholism eats my soul. It's a lot more painful when I'm not drinking. And these people had found a way out, and they just said, come on back, come on back, and I did. Well, I had another week or a couple weeks to go in this treatment center, and I had to get this sponsor, and there was a guy in the meeting named Buff, and I thought he was president of AA or something because everybody liked him, and he said good things. He actually gave me his phone number the first meeting I went to, and I thought, well, I'll get Buff to be my sponsor. But now when I'm sober, I'm scared, and I'm shy. I don't. I don't like to be around people. I don't like rejection or conflict or any of that stuff. And so I, I go up to him after the meeting. I said, "You know, Buff, I got to get a sponsor before I get out of treatment next week." That was my way of asking him. And he just looked at me and he said, "We well, got to ask somebody," and walked off. <laughs> so I saw him the next meeting. I said, "I said, Buff, will you be my sponsor?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll do that." He said, "I don't know a lot about finance or romance. I've been divorced and bankrupt." He said. Uh, I go to a lot of meetings, and he said, I'm going to be bone-crushing honest with you, and I want you to be bone-crushing honest with me. And then he told me something that I, it's the truest words I've ever heard. He said, if you'll take the 12 steps with me like I took them with my sponsor, your life will change whether you want it to or not. And he's right. Um, he was my sponsor for 10 and a half years, and he died 21 years ago yesterday. And I think about him every day, you know the people we meet here we make, we do make lifelong friends. uh He told me, get to know the people that you go to meet with because if you live, they're going to be your friends for the rest of your life and that's been true for me, and I miss Buff every day um, but at any rate i would I would love to tell you that I was so eager to do this program that I took all the twelve steps as fast as I could and lived happily ever after but in where We read how it works at some of these we balked. I balked at all the steps. <laughs> I balked at every one of them. Every time I'd get some relief, I'd sit on that till it got so painful that I was going to drink again or blow my brains out or do the next step. And I got the first three steps pretty easy. I, I knew I was powerless over alcohol. I knew my life was unmanageable. I tried to come to believe that a power greater than me could restore me to sanity. Man, I was a savage when I came here. I didn't have any belief in God. I thought, man, if there is a God, he's going to burn me because I, all the stuff I'd done but I didn't have anything else to do and I read in there, read the third step prayer and I didn't like the these and thous in there because it reminded me of church because I'd run away from church years before so I retyped it in modern English that's the way I said the third step prayer and my sponsor told me to get on my knees and ask God to direct my day and get on my knees at night and thank him for keeping me sober and I just did that to get him off my back but something happened and I, I can't describe what it is something started flowing I don't know what it was uh, in this relationship with god i've had changed a lot since i've been here there's times i've gone through this rebellion where i'd even be on my knees thinking i was praying to air like i don't believe any of this stuff but i found if i just do this stuff it works i don't have to believe it if i just do it um there was a man named mo and that died a long time ago in nashville and he said you don't have to feel spiritual to be spiritual And so I started taking these actions and my life got better. And I'm going to meetings and I'm learning the lingo and I'm getting comfortable and things seem to be doing pretty well at home. And I'm starting to read the book and I'm reading this part in there that we make amends to people and we share in a general way and we're rigorously honest. And I've got so much guilt and shame for being unfaithful to my wife that I think I need to make amends to her. And without talking to my sponsor... I got Diane in a a conversation one night Told her in a general way I'd been unfaithful to her And that I was going to be the husband and father she deserved And it didn't go well (laughs) And if there's anybody here that's That's thinking about doing that Because I really thought I was doing the right thing I really did If you're thinking about doing that Please come talk to me (laughs) Please, Please come talk to me Because it didn't go well. And I I called my sponsor and let him know what I did. That I tried to make amends to Diane. And I mean, he just went thermonuclear. And I try to keep my language clean up here. So I'm going to paraphrase what he he told me. Because I'm not going to tell you exactly what he told me. He said, that's why they number the steps for smart college boys like you. And he said, by the way, Hoss, you didn't make amends to her. All you did was dump your guilt. And when he told me that, it was like somebody stuck a knife through my chest. And that's when I hit my bottom. That's when I became teachable. And I thought, why do I need to reinvent the wheel? You know, there's people been through this book with their sponsors for years, you know, 85 years now. Why do I think I need to read this and interpret it? All I have to do is just do what the guy tells me to do. You know, i got to have a sponsor that's an English-to-English interpreter. You know, I've got to have a guy I have to that, that's a, that I can be responsible and accountable to, uh, you know, somebody that, that can just tell me what they did. And so that's how I became teachable. And so, man, I started doing a the four-step then, and I, I, I wrote a, a, a resentment list. I mean, I, I wrote down just about everybody in the Yellow Pages, I think, that I was mad at. <laughs> and I wrote down what they'd done to me and how it affected me in those first three columns. I think mean, it's pretty good because I fancied myself as a people pleaser. You know, I did all these things for people, and then they didn't, and turn on me. But then when I got in that fourth column, then I had to write down what mistakes did I, did I make. What did I do to make those resentments worse? And for the first time in my life, I got a clear reading of how I really was. Not who I thought I was or trying to pretend to be. It's just, This is how I'd live my life. And the people that I had the most resentments toward were the people that were the closest to me that loved me the most. And I'm going, what's wrong with that? It can't be them. You know, it says in there that we pray for all the people that I had resentments for, and I did that. I made a fears list. It says we write our fears in black and white. It says, we listed our fears and we asked ourselves why we had them. So I write all these fears down that had been just bouncing my weed eater in my head like a weed eater for all my life. But it was good to just see them on paper, the things I was afraid of. And I wrote all these elaborate reasons why I had these fears. But, you know, that's just a drunk trap. Because the next sentence in the book said, wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? And I looked at all my reasons. I might as well just wadded up and threw it in the trash can. I'd gone through my whole life with thinking my back's against the wall. and I got to shoot my way out. That's a terrible way to go through life because I'm really in fear, even though I think I'm the tough guy. You know, the book says that we ask God to remove our fear and ask Him what He would have us be. And I didn't have that tool, but that tool works when I really, when I, when I really, when I really use it. I did a sex inventory. I tried to remember every relationship I had from the 15-year marriage to Diane at the time to one night stand and everything in between that I could remember. And I might as well have just written one story how I treated women and just dumped all the names in it because I didn't know how to be a partner. I didn't have any skills how to do that. Uh, and I'm thinking, man, this, there's no way my marriage is going to survive. And Buff said, well, why don't you just keep taking these actions and let God sort that out? So I knew I had to learn, learn some skills. And I've learned that from sober men and women in AA and from my sponsor, my grand sponsor. Uh, but I did this, this exercise, and then Buff reads a part in there about the fist step about people that held things that didn't, didn't get their secrets out, that invariably they got drunk is what the book says. And that wasn't Bill Wilson's just idea, that was the experience of the people trying to get sober. So I'm go. So i afraid at this point that I'm gonna leave something out, so I write down all this stuff I'm gonna say in a fist step, but I wrote some of them in, in code in case somebody <laughs> found a pic, piece of paper. I go over to his house on a Saturday morning, and he invites God in the room, and he said, what's the worst thing on your list? And I looked down at the code, and, and I told him something that I thought I'd never tell anybody. And I thought he'd just say, you know, what an order. I can't go through with it. You get out of here. And, and instead, he told me the worst thing on his fifth step list because, because he was a guy that loved me enough to want me to be comfortable empty this garbage can I'd been carrying around. And, you know, sometimes I get I get tired of talking about this past stuff. I wish I could just put it to rest and not talk about it anymore. But that stuff has value. That's Our our dark past is our greatest treasure for somebody. You know, I was listening to a guy's fist step not long ago, and I, and I asked him, I said, what's the worst thing on your list? And he told me. And I asked him a question about it, and he gave me an answer. And then I told him the worst thing is on my fist step list. And all of a sudden, he just changed. I could see a shift in his eyes, and he got quiet, and he said, you know, I didn't tell you the truth a minute ago. Let me tell you what really happened. And by me bearing my soul to him, he was able to empty this garbage can that he was carrying around. So that stuff has value. Uh, and So I leave his house, and I don't tell him everything because because on the list looks like the same kind of stuff, you know, after this, what I told him. And I get about a block from his house, and it dawns on me that a friend of mine said that he had left something out of a fist at me, got drunk again. And that's the first time I thought, you know, if I think I'm a real alcoholic, I got to do all this stuff like you, you guys do. I don't get to do this cafeteria style. And I picked up my phone, and I called Buffett, I said, Look, I left something out. And he starts laughing. And I said, Why are you laughing? He said, Oh, man, usually it takes a couple of hours before they call back. You know, you're easy. <laughs> he said, What is it? And I told him, and he said, I love you anyway. And I get to tell guys that I love them anyway. We're just trying to get well here. So I go back to my office, and I do step six and seven. I write there a paragraph of peace. And I read two steps, two paragraphs in 10 minutes, I'm thinking, boy, this is great, man. Do something fast after all this sweat and bullets. And if you're hung up on a step, I'm telling you, sometimes I think the steps are punishment, you know, when I'm really suffering through them. But the truth of the matter is, is after I've gotten through taking action, I look back and I go, why didn't I do this sooner? It just delayed my recovery and the people around me's recovery as well. So the steps aren't punishment. It's the way to freedom. So... After that, I think, well, okay, he's telling me I need to make an amends list, but nope, I'm feeling good again. And I I think I know I've lost up my life because I did this inventory. So for a couple of months, I just thought, well, I just won't be that guy anymore. And I wound up being the same sarcastic, explosive, depressive guy I always was. But I knew why now because I had it explained, you know. And that's when I found out that this is not a self-help program. This is a God deal. You know, I don't have the power to remove my character defects. And I got into it with my father-in-law uh, down at his house about something, and I called my sponsor and he just died laughing. He said, "Congratulations, Hoss! You're trying to remove your own character defects." He said, "Find a quiet place, get on your knees, and say the seventh step prayer like you mean it, and let's get busy on these amends." And I want to tell you about a couple of amends that I'm that I made. Uh, and the first one is this lady on the front row. I love this woman to death. Uh, she's my partner. Uh, I can't say enough about her. If she puts up with me till Monday, we've been married 46 years. <laughs> And, uh, so, so Buff been so about two years, and he wrote, read in the literature what I ought to do, and I wrote, I wrote a letter according to his instructions, and I gave her the letter, and she read the letter and tore it up. And I went back to him, and I said, "Well, that didn't work. What else do we do?" And he said, "Well, he showed me in the book where that's what we ought to do." And, and that was his best interpretation, which was better than the first time I, I made a pass at it, by the way. <laughs> and so he said, "You just try to be the husband and father she deserves." And I was hearing a lot about living amends, which I still do. And so uh, things got better in our home. And I thought they were better than they were, apparently. And about five and a half years later, we, ate, we wound up at a family counselor. And in, first, I mean, in five minutes, my infidelity came up. And I got some information from that counselor for what Diane wanted for an amends. And I took it to my sponsor. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, I don't think that'll work. I think she'll leave me. And he said, well, could you stay sober if she does? And that's not the question I wanted to hear, you know. I said, yeah, I guess so, but I really want to make this marriage work. He said, well, you know, she needs closure. And that's when I really took to heart that, you know, I have no right to, to uh, create further damage. There's nothing in this book create, create to, to harm anybody. But I have to make amends to people the way they want their amends made, not the way I want it. And I got the courage to make amends to her for, for what she wanted, and I thought, this is it. My marriage is over. But that was uh, 26 years ago, December the 18th. And I got a marriage today that's built on honesty and trust. And I get to be a partner in it with this woman. And I wouldn't trade my marriage or my relationship with Diane with for anybody on the whole planet. You know, I'm a blessed man. And it's all because I was willing to make that amends. I want to tell you about my next-door neighbor. <laughs> Buff said when you make, a, make amends to people, you don't just go tell them you're sorry. He said, they know what a sorry son of a gun you are, you know. He said, you need to go apologize to him, but you need to plant him another weeping cherry tree. He said, no, you don't need to tell him you know how it died, that you killed it." He said, that wouldn't add anything to his life. And so, but I don't know about you guys, but when I find out about an amends i got to make, these people just kind of show up. And I'm coming home a couple days later from the back room group, and I pull in my driveway, and there he is out there on his riding lawnmower. And my heart starts pounding, and I stop at the foot of my driveway, and I put the car in park, and I said, God, I don't know what I, exactly what I'm supposed to do here, but please give me the right words to say and, and, and the, the courage to do it. And I got out of my car, and I walked around the six-foot-high wood fence that I'd put up after he sued me to screen him out. <laughs> And I'm walking over to him on this lawnmower, and he sees me coming, and I mean, his eyes just get big as saucers because we hadn't spoken in years, and I mean, he has this look on his face like, can I get this lawnmower and hire enough gear to get away from this guy, or should I abandon ship and run? You know, he doesn't want to see me, but he, but he, I guess he just froze because I was walking toward him, and he stopped and he turned the lawnmower off, and he got off and came over to me, and I said, Mr. Logan, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, Sure. What is it? I said, I did a terrible thing cutting your trees down. And I disrespected you and your wife for a long time. And all that was wrong. And I'm trying to change some things in my life. And I don't know what I can ever do to make up for the damage I've caused you. But if there's anything I can do to make up for that, I'm willing to do whatever it is. Now, I didn't mean to say that. I I didn't mean to say, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I really didn't. But I asked asked God to direct what came out of my mouth, and that's what came out of my mouth. And I thought the man would just say, get off my property. Don't you ever come near me again. Because that's how I dealt with people. You know, you got my way, just burn the bridge, you know, blow it away. And that's what I thought he would do. You know, sometimes we hurt people beyond their capacity to love us, and they want to be left alone, and that's what we do. And I expected him to do that. But instead, this man came over to me, and he put his arms around me, and he started hugging me, and he started sobbing on my shoulder. This man's 80 years old. And I'm standing there, and this man's hugging me and crying on my shoulder, and I'm paralyzed because I didn't know what to do with that. I was so freaked out by that. And he looked at me. He pulled away from me after he hugged me for a while, and he said, what's in the past is over. He just forgave me right there on the spot. And I'm so freaked out by that, my mind says, okay, he's forgiving you, run. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I was, I was going to run away. And I, and I would have, by the way, if I hadn't had clear instructions from my sponsor about what to do. I heard Buff's voice say, don't you run away, you got something to do here. I had clear instructions from a man that had, was completely unemotional to my problems that I had. That's why he could give me good direction. And I said, I, f- I appreciate you forgiving me, Mr. Logan, but I really want to do something to make up for this. And then he told me something that I, I didn't expect to hear. He said, you already have by coming over here. He said, the thing that hurt us the most all these years is that we'd lost our neighbor. And we've been, my wife and I have been praying every day that we'd get our neighbor back, and now our prayers have been answered. Now I'd been pulling my driveway, cussing him every day, and he'd been <laughs> praying for me. <laughs> My sponsor told me later after I heard this story a couple times, he said, you know, if you ever get to where your higher power is not big enough, why don't you just borrow Mr. Logan's for a while? And I said, well, I really want to do something to make up for it. he said, well, you already had by coming over here. And I said, well, I noticed your cherry tree died over there. Can Can I plant you another tree? He said, well, you don't have to do that. And I said, well, I'd like to if you'll let me. And he said, well, Ms. Logan were like that. Well, I didn't have my people anymore. My business went just terrible. And I mean, after I got sober, my business got worse for the first two years I was sober because I'd made so many bad decisions. But I didn't ever stop doing AA. I just did it all. You know, I try to build AA around my life. I don't build my life around AA when it's convenient. And uh, so my son, my older son is 42 now. He was 12 at the time. He and I went and got a bigger weeping cherry tree, and we planted it in this man's yard. And, and he wrote me a letter that I was really grateful to get this letter at the time, but I didn't know what it would mean down the road. And by the way, one thing that I didn't know when I first came in here, when I first took the steps, it was like I was putting out all these, I had all these dumpster fires of things going wrong in my life, and I was trying to fix every one of those things just to put those fires out right then. I had no idea that the actions I took, some of them a long time ago, were still paying me dividends today. It allowed me to cut down the weeds that I was growing in my life, and instead of replanting weed seed, I'm planting good seed, and I'm harvesting good stuff now. And I'm harvesting—you reap more than what you sow—and that's the good news that I didn't that I didn't have. And one of these is this letter. Um, this is dated June 26, 1991. Dear Mike, it was with much surprise that we found a beautiful cherry tree in our yard when we returned home yesterday. We had not expected it so soon. We appreciate it so very much, and we will care for it, and we will cherish it always, not only for its own sake, for it is a beautiful tree, but because it symbolizes a deep and lasting friendship between us and you and your family. We pray that God will bless you and your family in all that you do, and we pray for ourselves, for we are a sinful people by nature. They're none of us without fault, and we need his constant love and forgiveness. Again, we thank you for the tree. We're all the more grateful because you did not have to do it. Your friendship means more to us than you know. Most sincerely, George Logan. Um, This man gave us a country ham or a box of Omaha steaks for Christmas every year till he died. When my dad died about a year later, the first flowers that came to the funeral home was a wreath of purple orchids from Mr. Logan. I've still got one of them on my desk. He died about four years later. And you guys taught me to show up for weddings and funerals and graduation stuff I thought I was too busy for. So I suit up and show up and go to this big Baptist church in our neighborhood. And I go in there, and the place is packed full of people, and I don't know a soul. But I'm shaking hands in the receiving line, and I'm shaking hands with these people I don't know. And I shake hands with this one man, and he says, Oh, you're Mr. Allison. Dad told us all about you. I'm going, mm-hmm. He said that you'd had a disagreement, but that you'd made it right. And you see, I wouldn't have made it right. I would have gone to the grave hating this man if I wasn't desperate enough to do what my sponsor suggested in that ninth step. After this, the promises started coming true for me. I started knowing a new freedom and new happiness. My life got really good. Uh, I had a tenth step to stay current of this wreckage of the present that I keep creating. You know, I got this 11th step to start getting closer to this God that I really don't understand, don't have to, but I have faith. And I had a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, and I'm trying to carry this message and sponsor people and stuff. And it goes to my head. I mean, I'm in AA, Diane's in Al-Nan, our sons are in Alateen. teen we're in Al-A-Dog and Al-A-Cat and everything. Monica, you know? I think we're the recovery family. And all of a sudden I get a call from my younger son's eighth grade principal and said, we found your son with some marijuana. And uh, we have zero tolerance, he's out of school for a year, come get him right now. And I thought, no, man, you don't understand, we're the recovery family, this can't be happening to us. <laughs> so I go and we finally get him in an alternative learning center. For that year, and I had to leave my place of work a little after one o'clock every day and drive into Nashville to pick him up in a five-minute window from five minutes to two to two o'clock every day and pick him up at this alternative learning center and either take him back out to my sod farm, which was on the other side of the county, or a house in South Nashville and then back out to the sod farm. And I'm thinking, is this my reward for staying sober and sponsoring all these guys? That You know, my kid gets kicked out of school for weed and and i got to work extra hours for a year. You know, I'm such a knucklehead. I've got such contempt prior to investigation. I never know the gifts God's putting in front of me. What that did is it forced me to spend time with my son that year that I that I wouldn't have spent because I worked all the time. And I got to know him on a on a level that year that was just priceless. You know, he's 39 years old now. He's lived in in Northern California for 19 years. He and I have an awful lot in common, and he and I've been able to share a lot of things together. And I love my son and if I hadn't, if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have that. Uh, when I was 10 years sober, my sponsor Buff got a terminal disease and it took him about a year and a half to die. And people were asking me, who's gonna be your sponsor? And I kept putting them off. As long as Buff's alive, he's my sponsor. Well, he passed away 21 years ago yesterday. And, uh, and then I had this, somebody else asked me who I was gonna get for a sponsor and I put them off. Then I had a conversation with myself. I thought, you know, you're ten and a half years sober. You know, you've your uh, your life's good, your business is good, your family's good. You know, you you took all the steps. You know what Buffett tell you anyway. You probably don't need to get another sponsor. <laughs> and I thought about that for for about actually about two days. And I went, that's nuts. You know, I got I got alcoholism, not alcoholism. And so I picked up the phone and I called Terry. He was the guy who slept with that pint of vodka. I was telling you about. And, and Buff sponsored Terry And Terry came in about six months before I did And I saw Terry's life change You know it's amazing when, when the promises come true for somebody We see them in the people before they see it But I saw it in Terry And I rode his coattails through the steps He was an attraction to me So I picked up my phone and called Terry I said look I was decided I don't need to get another sponsor But that's nuts Will you be my sponsor And he said yeah but I'm not Buff And I thought I needed another guy like Buff But there'll never be anybody like Buff but Terry's now been my sponsor twice as long as Buff has, and he's a wonderful man. He's a, he's a bare-bones, basic AA guy. He's, he's at home right now doing Friday things on Friday. He's taught me to live one day at a time and helped me to be a, a husband and a father and a grandfather and all those good things. And But what I didn't know is when I take action, I think it's just helping me. But God has us all interconnected because he'd been having the same conversation in his head too. And after we hung up, he picked up the phone, called another guy, said, "You know, I wasn't going to get another sponsor, but Allison said that's crazy. Will you be my sponsor?" <laughs> so that's how we help each other. Uh, I really enjoyed being here. I really enjoyed Kim open opening this thing up earlier. Uh, it was a wonderful AA story. I'm really looking forward to seeing all my people here and be, hearing all the other speakers uh, this weekend. And I just want to close with something uh, uh, Bill Wilson wrote. I get the The Grapevine Daily Quote. You can get that email to you every morning if you don't know about that. And Bill Wilson wrote this in nineteen sixty one. Let us remember that great legion who still suffer from alcoholism and who are still without hope. Let us, at any cost or sacrifice, so improve our communication with all these that they may find what we found a new life of freedom under God. You know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous, I love God, I love all you people, and I really do love this good life. Thank you for letting me be here.